This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Brad Warner about his latest book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center in Doga Sangha, Los Angeles. He is the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several other books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and the Truth About Reality, Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock, Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye, and Don't Be a Jerk, and other practical advice from Dogen, Japan's greatest Zen master. He plays bass in the hardcore punk band Zero Defects, is the star of the movies Shoplifting from American Apparel and Zombie Bounty Hunter M.D., was director of the film Cleveland's Screaming, and is a former vice president of the U.S. branch of Tsuburaya Productions, the company founded by the creator of Godzilla. Brad moved to Japan in 1993, where he began studying Zen with the iconoclastic teacher Gudowafu Nishijima. After a few years, Nishijima ordained Brad and made him his Dharma successor. Brad Warner, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Hi, glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and um, you've, uh, we, we spoke to you less than a year ago. I think it was in April, oh. um, and um, yeah. it, was, it was your previous book, and you mentioned at the time uh, yeah. that you were going to be coming out with this book that we've just read, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, Yeah. and of course, we've, had the, we've both had a chance to read it. Um, I love the book, um, Thank you. and... Um, uh, love love your stuff, but um, but we want to uh, talk about the stuff that you specifically bring up. I wanted to begin okay. with something that you have in the that you mentioned in the afterward, okay. which is which is that your your original idea for the book, this particular book, yeah. was as a, a Buddhist primer or or Zen a primer, Zen primer, whatever. Yeah, yeah, sure, and um, and so I'll, I'll just state offhand that I think my, my own view is that, is that it both accomplishes that to a certain extent, but, but also is much bigger than that. But I'm wondering how you feel about how the book turned out in terms of that original intention. In terms of that intention, I, I don't know, because the thing that happened, and I think I said this in the afterward, is when I tried to write Zen 101, it was just boring to me. Right, I right. couldn't make anything out of it because you know, I've been through that a long, long time ago, and I just don't. Yeah, it's hard to get interested in it. So I don't. It's hard to tell if it accomplished uh, the purposes in in terms of that because when I when I changed it from a sort of generic primer or primer, however you say it, about mm-hmm. Zen and made it more personal and made it these letters to my friend who, who passed away. Mm-hmm. I, uh, 
I could no longer, I, I, the, the original idea was I could repurpose a lot of this material that I'd started writing and hadn't finished with uh, Zen 101, but I couldn't really do exactly that because I felt like I needed to be honest with this. You know, they're, they're, I, I, I think, I think it's not going to shock readers to know that they aren't actually, <laughs> sorry, letters to, to my dead friend that I expect him to read because he's dead, of course. Mm-hmm. But I did feel the the need to be honest about it. So I, I felt like I, I'm going to write this exactly as if he could read it. Yeah. Both of the people that I dedicated to near the end of the book. And I, and, and in doing so, I felt like I had to explain why. I, because this, the, the guy I'm, the, the main person I was thinking of had no, he had sort of interest in, in finding out the, truth of life and and all of that like like any sort of thoughtful person would but he had no interest specifically in buddhism and and i felt like well now i have to explain to this guy why i would get into buddhism of all things because it's it's not uh it's not normal somebody's screeching tires out there i don't know if you're getting that on the recording but but uh, so so it became more about that. It became more about why why would I why would I do something as weird as Buddhism? Because you know a lot of people are interested in the greater truths of life and they take different paths and stuff. And and who gets into Buddhism? Mostly, I don't know, weirdos. <laughs> you well, know? I mean that's not to be insulting, but you know. But I mean, there's a a real interesting question that impacts me as a long-term spiritual practitioner. Uh-huh. And that's that question of how do you, or do you explain what you do or why you're interested in this stuff to someone who doesn't seem to have that same kind of interest or passion? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. Exactly. And I, I came to this, I, I wasn't, I don't have a background in religion. I don't come from a religious family. So there was no sort of, tradition I was following to to get into religious stuff and I just found this very appealing and very sensible but you know now I have to justify it because I think to to somebody who's not into a spiritual practice you know especially something as specific as Buddhism it probably it looks a little bit like I've I've joined a cult or something you know I mean that that frankly speaking you know this is what uh, I, I, I imagine a lot of people you remember a few years ago where there, there, there was a, that meme that people were doing, you know, what my mother thinks I do, what, what, yeah, yeah. what my, you know, family thinks I do. And what, what I, I made one of those and what my friends think I do. I think I put a picture of uh, Jonestown or something. Like <laughs> Cause I, I assume that's what I look like to, to most of my friends who are not part of this, you know, thing. I, I, it just, I, I don't know. I don't know what they think of it. Well, I think, I think there's a lot of people are afraid that uh, if, if they open that door, it's going to be like uh, a nonstop conversion or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot of that out there, you know, and I, I feel like I dodged some of that in my you know, younger years. I, I sort of looked into some of these things and I, and I realized, Oh, these people are trying to convert me and they're trying to, you know, make me part of the, you know, the cult and, speaking all the special words and all that stuff. And I've really right. resisted all that. But Buddhism is a specific thing. You know, it, it does have a history, you know, it's got a 2,500 year old year history and it's got institutions and it's, you know, it's got all these, it's got hierarchies. And in the Zen, in the Zen stream of things, we, 
depending on which version of Zen you're getting into, but the, the version I got into, we tend to kind of ignore all those hierarchies and in, in institutions, but uh, they do, they do exist. Uh, so, you know, it can look like, uh, you know, just another one of these religions. And so I felt like I had to, to kind of explain why it might not be what you think it is. Uh, right. Uh, See, oh, no, no, that makes sense. Uh, um, I mean, you do at the end of, I think it's chapter five, where, you talk, where you're talking about Buddhism. I'm, I, I have it refreshed because I was just looking at the book. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I read it. I, I, I read it about a month ago and um, over a period of weeks. And, and but I, I refreshed my memory in the last couple of days. So anyway, uh, it's the it's the chapter about Buddhism's what they agree on. Yeah, and at the yeah. end of the word, you actually use the word primer, that this is, this is like a primer oh, okay, yeah. of what, of what Buddhists, Buddhists can agree on, yeah. and which turns out to be not very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really, it really does. I, I was kind of surprised when I decided to do that. There's a book I have here, which I dip into every once in a while, but I've never finished the whole thing, called uh, Buddhist Religions. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with that. Uh, yeah. it, it's kind of a textbook about Buddhism written it came out in like five different versions so this book has been revised a few times but the reason it's called buddhist religions is it's the contention of one of the authors i forget i think this thing's got three authors that that the forms of buddhism are so different from each other that the word buddhism is about as meaningful as the word monotheism you know mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of it, it's sort of a catch-all term for for a lot of uh religions that have things in common but they're you know right so i I imagine you know you could compare it to like a judaism christianity and islam all kind of go back to the old testament and so all the forms of buddhism similarly go back to buddha but they're you know they're about as similar as, as islam and christianity and judaism yeah i think hindu has the same issue you know the i think british colonialists invented the term hinduism But Hinduism is really such a myriad of different uh, uh, strands and interpretations that to say it's one thing is really begs the question. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and, and Buddhism also comes from the, the same roots. The word, the, the Buddhists didn't really have a word Buddhism as such until, you know, the 20th century and or maybe slightly before. And it was the British who were researching the religions of India who came up with Hinduism and Buddhism as as terms. But um, but yeah, the, in in Japanese it's Bukyo, which just means the, the teachings of Buddha. But it doesn't really it doesn't really have the same feel as a as as the word Buddhism in English. Well, that's really interesting, and and um, it seems to me that one of the things that's um, uh, true about about this is that as you point out in 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 the chapter i was referring to is that about the only thing that that buddhists can agree on is certain events in the life of the buddha where they as it happens where they happened to take place yeah and and even those because some of this some of the places don't exist anymore as named places yeah um, you can't even locate it that way but then uh, you you run through a, a sort of a very you know abbreviated list of some of the things that that they um, basically don't agree on very much. 
Yeah, I can't but, remember what I said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I thought that the uh, four noble uh, what. Oh, truths I love. I love by the way, I got to say, I love no the noble truths. Yeah, I'm surprised people like that. I'm glad people like that joke because I put it in there and I thought, oh, that's so dumb. I can't. It's not. <laughs> it is, I mean, it is, but it isn't. It, it, but a bunch because, of people have told me they like that, so I'm like, okay. Well, but it, because it it actually makes you makes you reflect, or at least for me, it made me reflect on why you why you did that joke. Or what noble yeah. actually means. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, there's all these different forms that are, that are, that literally are like different uh, religions. There's, you know, um, uh, the, the, the various devotional forms, there's various um, uh, re relatively intellectualized forms, yeah. Buddhist psychology. But what I wanted to bring up is, and you don't really touch on it much in, in the book, mm -hmm. uh, because it's, it's not really in the scope of what you're trying to say, but, but one of the things that's been happening in the last couple hundred years, but particularly in the last 50 years, I'd say, mm -hmm. is that there's a sort of a Western scientific version yeah. of Buddhism. And you do mention this in the book. It, um, the, the, the sort of, you know, Stephen Batchelor and yeah, yeah. Fo folks like that are really creating a kind of um, scientifically based or, or secular or well, secular yeah, scientific yeah, well, base uh, of Buddhism. And I, and you don't have much to say about that, but I'm wondering, well, I, since we've got you here, you've got the aside on Sam Harris. And so that, that <laughs> and, and, yeah. and he would be an exponent of scientific. Oh, Buddhism. Okay. Okay. That's one of my, one of my little jokes about Sam Harris. <laughs> yeah uh well let's see i i i think it's interesting i think it's an interesting development and i grew up mostly in the united states so i understand that point of view and i understand the necessity of it and and one of the things that got me into buddhism in the first place was that it was the first religion i had come across that didn't seem to fear science you know, every mm -hmm. other every other religion I'd looked into, and I, and I realize now that there are a few more, but everything I'd looked into up until age 18, when I you know first stumbled upon Buddhism, just seemed to be terrified of of that science was going to pull the rug out and and reveal mm -hmm. that everything was a sham, and and so they were busy fighting against that, but the Buddhists weren't, you know, at least at least not the ones I encountered. So so I I do like that, and I and I think that's legitimate. Uh, there are people these days, it, it seemed to become a kind of a minor trend to criticize this sort of scientific-based Buddhism or, or science-accepting Buddhism as a, as a purely Western invention that doesn't reflect what Buddhism was in Asia. But I don't think that's correct. Um, and and, I, and I, I was sort of half buddedly <laughs> I don't want to work blue on your station I was sort of I was sort of half you know I, I was sort of not not working on it very hard but but looking into that and, um, and especially in terms of Dogen who's 800 years ago you know so there wasn't really a concept of science in Japan during, during his day but he's very much into reason and mm -hmm. very much into cause and effect which I think are the the foundations of of the scientific method. So so he he uses the word uh, you I think is the word he uses. He uses the word that gets translated as reason 
like I don't know hundreds of times in in Shobo Genzo, and he he uh, has a whole chapter devoted to cause and effect and why you should never ignore cause and effect and why everything has to be, you know, uh, understood in terms of cause and effect. So I don't think the the scientific uh, the scientific aspects of Buddhism are are um, a new thing that just got put in there by the Westerns. I think they were there to begin with. The, the secularization is a is another thing that I find interesting because I don't think you could you could define Buddhism as a religion, and certain kinds of Buddhism are definitely religions by any you know stretch. Sure. Zen Buddhism is arguably not exactly a religion because it doesn't really fit a lot of the categories. The thing I, I get concerned about when they try to secularize it, like with the mindfulness movement and stuff is, well, this, this thing has been happening recently with people who practice mindfulness is that they'll get, and this is, I, I've been reading articles about this, so this is not just a one-time thing where a lot of people who go into a mindfulness class hoping to reduce their stress end up freaking out, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and having all kinds of problems. And I think a lot of that is because it's, it's they're trying to strip away the meditation and present it in a purely secular fashion. And they're not really, I, I think we're, we, we have a tendency in the West to be kind of arrogant and, and think we've figured things out when we haven't quite figured them out. And I don't think the mindfulness movement has quite figured out uh, what's going on and why all these supposedly religious seeming things exist in Buddhist practice. And, and I, I believe that a lot of these religious aspects of, of Buddhism, the ones that even still exist in the Zen form, are there to, to help people get through some of the stuff that, that they're not getting through when they, you know, they, you need a philosophical framework, for right. example. Because you're going to, if you go into meditation practice and you practice it diligently and seriously, you know, not just as, you know, five minutes a day or something, it's going to challenge a lot of your core understanding of the way the universe works, you know, which, which can, can leave a person who has no other foundation kind of going, whoa, you know, it feels like the world has dropped out from under you. So. I don't know. I kind of rambled with that answer. No, uh, it makes sense. I mean, there's there, uh, there's a couple of things that come up. Uh, there's there's certainly the critique now that large institutions, uh, corporations, military like mindfulness because it reduces the stress. That's a natural byproduct of the unnaturalness of those institutions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But the there's a to me there's a I, I'm more along the lines that you just described that it, you're kind of stripping away the ethical core and yeah and there's a kind of ethics and a way of being that follows when your notion of the self kind of dissolves and yeah, yeah. And, and, and buddhism that. articulates that and you need that because i i think this is the reason it's my pet theory about why a lot of these uh scandals are happening in the West with uh, Buddhism, because if you don't really, if you're not really firm on that foundation of what, you know, the absence of self means, you can kind of trick yourself into thinking, oh, I'm, I'm one with the universe, I'm one with everyone, therefore anything I do to somebody else is just something I do to me, and therefore I can do anything I want to other people. I, I kind of feel like there's a bit of that uh, going on, you know, mm -hmm. people don't really understand that, yeah, you're one with everything and everyone is you, but they're also, 
that's also, you know, the conventional view also has a, a truth to it. So you can't, you know, just do whatever you want. But I think the ethical foundations are really key. And I think we have difficulty in the West talking about ethics without making it religious. Well, but this is interesting, the way you, you guys have, have just articulated, the two of you, Stuart, Stuart and Brad, because uh, uh, Brad, you, you were mentioning, the, you started off with the philosophical context. That's yeah. not the word you used, but you said philosophical. And, and, and Stuart brought in the ethical dimension, which of yeah. course you talk about a lot in, um, in both the books of yours I've read. Uh, but it seems to me that, that those things have to be articulated in a skillful way together, yeah. the ethical and the philosophical, to create a context that's going to be effective in preventing the kind of problems that you're that you're pointing to. That, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, and and I think you say skillful. I mean, it is it is a difficult sort of question. Uh, how how do you present that in such a way that it doesn't? I think I think our problem with religion in the West is we've had so many religious conflicts, and we're trying to build, especially in the United States, this pluralistic society where mm. all religions, you know, no religion gets to dominate the others. And so, for example, if you want to teach somebody to meditate in a in a school or in an environment that's supposed to be secular, then you can't you can't address philosophical yeah. and ethical stuff. And that's a problem because you have to address philosophical and ethical stuff. And, and I don't know where it's going. And I, I imagine maybe we're on our way to building a, a kind of a, a secular Buddhism. But if you're going to do that, it's going to have to have a philosophy and an ethical system. Uh, and, and, I, and we haven't figured out how to do that yet, I think. Yeah. I mean, one dis way I, I tend to distinguish Buddhist ethics and the way it's presented, uh, particularly in what I call more austere forms of Buddhism, like Zen, is the it's still rooted in cause and effect. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like it's not like don't do this because you're going to go to hell or you're going to become a, a minion of yeah. uh, Satan. It's it's don't do this because you will create suffering for others and for yourself. And yeah. you can you can you can demonstrate this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but then again, you know, the other thing I found with a, with a lot of people over here is is if you start talking about karma, that this this happened to me recently, which which I thought was really bizarre, but a, a somewhat unbalanced person got on my social media platform, and and I had done a video because I do this YouTube channel. I'd done a video about. I don't think I used the word karma, but I I kind of was broaching that that subject of of how things you do are gonna you know come back to you and and so forth and and this person she immediately went to brad warner is set telling people i think this is the thing she was saying she was sending this to a lot of people brad warner is telling people that that abused children deserve to be abused because of their past karma and i had said nothing in this i said nothing about abused children and nothing about past right, lives right, or anything right, right. But immediately she leaped to that, right? And, and I and, and I think a lot of people leap to these kind of really weird ideas when they start hearing uh, about karma. You know, I guess mm -hmm. they start spinning and they go, "Ah, oh, that means." Eh. And uh, to me, when you're talking about karma, the best thing to do with those teachings is to only apply them to yourself. You know, yeah. don't, forget about how it might work for another person. 
and 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 sort of assume I don't know if you assume um, pretend might be a better word that karma doesn't apply to anybody but but yourself you know uh, because for all practical purposes it doesn't matter how it applies to anybody else it matters how it applies to me well I, I mean what you're saying is that is that when you when the mind projects on projects these ideas onto other people yeah it's doing it to to fulfill some agenda essentially yeah or that's yeah. the tendency at least and you don't want to do that so when i think of karma i just think if if i do this thing it's going to bite me on the on the behind yeah uh, so i'm not going to do that you know and and it's going to hurt somebody else but in hurting somebody else i'm ultimately also hurting myself so it's sort of a uh, a kind of selfishness that has a an ethics to it you know yeah I, 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 one one sense i have of this is that there there's a tension between the way westerners tend to think of things partly because of our own religious traditions and the way that i i see traditions from asia in particular manifesting and that and that's this distinction between uh, a teaching that is useful uh you know, it, it's workable and it has a good result versus the truth with a capital T. Mm. And so something yeah. like karma, like you're just saying, karma is useful. Uh, if you apply it to yourself, if you understand cause and effect, if you uh, see that suffering begets suffering, yeah. that's going to have, that's going to kind of land in someone in a very practical way. From a Western mindset, though, if you then if you if you have to know the truth and suddenly put a capital letter around it and say yeah. karma, then then you get this these weird kind of spin outs like you're describing. And, yeah. I don't, and I don't think I don't think you have to treat it as true or false. It's like, is it useful? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of what I come down to as well. It's it, the, the teachings of karma have been really useful to me. And I and I don't know what it implies. You know, one of the biggest things that people get into is, is reincarnation because they'll say, well, karma implies reincarnation. Uh, and, and I'll go, well, yeah, but I, I'm not, I'm not, I can't prove or disprove reincarnation. So I'm not going to worry about it, you know? Right. Uh, so I, I just, I figure, you know, my, my, my own belief system is sort of leaning in favor of, something like reincarnation but i don't i don't hold on to it as a as a belief you know i don't i don't say well i believe that this is going to this is what i don't know what will happen after i die you know um but i i assume that anything left over that that hasn't bitten me on the behind yet will find a way to do so even <laughs> even after i pass away and i, I don't i don't want to speculate on how that happens but well, but that's a hard, that, I mean, I mean, what you just articulated is pretty much the way you, you, you address the issue of, of karma in, in letters to a dead friend about Zen, because um, it's, it's a very tricky thing to be able, because I have the same, you know, when you said uh, I lean in the direction of thinking there's something like reincarnation yeah. and, and the phrase something like is really important here, it seems yeah. to me, because we don't, we, how could we possibly know, given the data that we seem to have access to, how that would work? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the first part of it. And then the second part of it is, is that um, if you approach it the way that you're suggesting, what does yeah. it mean for me and not worrying about how other people ought to get their 
the karma that I think they should they yeah. should be experiencing yeah. or something. Well, um, yeah, I, I just tricky. sort of yeah, I just sort of assume everybody's going to get their their karma. This is the part where I apply it to other people, and that I don't really have to worry that much about making sure it happens. It's, it's <laughs> a bit of a relief, you know. I figure, it, I figure it'll it'll take care of itself, and it's just not my business. Actually, so, yeah, that, I was just going to say that 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 uh, uh, opens the door to this whole uh, uh, topic of engaged Buddhism. Because there, there is, there's definitely a strand of Buddhism that, that is all about making certain things happen in the world. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, a, I, you know, I have to be careful what I say about that because every time I, I say anything, I get in trouble and people get mad at me. But I, I've never been really that taken by the engaged Buddhism thing uh, mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. because of what I just said. I figure the karma will take care of itself, and and I, and I, you know, I have to say that that. I'm all in favor of trying to do good things in the world, you know, and give to charity and, and protect the environment and, you know, all this other stuff. I'm not, I'm not saying we, we should, we shouldn't do anything like that. But on the other hand, it does seem to be, I don't know. I think, I think, I think when I see engaged Buddhism in action, I see the same problem that I see in engaged anything is, is your, uh, mo mostly people are concerned about big sexy topics, you know, like climate change, you know, or the presidency or, you know, so, you know, so they're, they're, they're want to be engaged in these, in these massive big issues that really an individual can't have a whole lot of effect upon, you know, you can, you can do something, but I, I think if you're going to be an engaged Buddhist, what you do is, is uh, try in every interaction to do the right thing, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, and that to me is engaged Buddhism and whether that, you know, uh, means you, uh, you, you sign a petition for, for climate change or something like that, you know, those, those things, those things are, are too big. I think people get wrapped up in that and they get wrapped up in this idea of success and failure. I remember I had this, for most of the time I was practicing this stuff in Japan, I also had a job, you know, I was working for a film production company. You guys have read the book, so you know that. Mm -hmm. but, um, and, and that company was very dysfunctional and, you know, I could spin off and tell you all about that, but just, you know, I think it's probably enough to say, and they, they had loads and loads of problems. And I really liked working for that company. I wanted it to be successful. Successful, so I would I would personalize all these problems, and it was mm -hmm. really bothering me how badly things were going at the company. So I went and had this talk with Nishijima Roshi at a time when I was thinking about just quitting because I thought I can't I can't deal with this anymore. Everything's going wonky, and he told me he advised me not to quit my job there and to make a little difference. Ah, <laughs> and I nice. and I thought oh that's good I, if I can make a little difference. Uh, and and that just changed my whole outlook of, of the thing. You know, I went back the next day to work, and I and I made it my job not to fix the dysfunctionality of the company, but to do the parts that were you know that fell into my lap in such a way that they didn't become part of the, the problem. And then, right. You know, it just well, and that and that relieves a little bit of the suffering of the other folks too, of course. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. But but what I, what I wanted to bring up is a, is one of the dangers I see, and it's not just Buddhism. You know, there's liberal left Christianity, yeah. which ends up being essentially engaged Christianity, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to use that phrase. And 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 to me, 
the real danger there, or one of the major dangers, is this um, idea that you're telling yourself that you're being virtuous. Yeah, yeah. And and people get seduced by that uh, siren call because you think it's going to make you feel good. You yeah. think you think you'll feel like um, you're being positive, creating this positive effect in the world, and yet you're only seeing part of the equation. It seems to me, if you're on, if if you're imagining as 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 people do that they're going to have this big effect instead of what you're pointing to with it's okay to just have a small effect when yeah. you're one out of 8 billion people or whatever. Yeah. Because there's not, you know, these, these big problems. I mean, it, 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 sometimes I say this and people mistake it for complacency, but I don't think it's complacent to, to have an understanding that you can only have so much of an effect. And once you've done the the thing that you're going to do then you know you might as well just relax about it because it's going to it's going to take the form that it it takes and there's not much you can do you just try to you know set the you know the arrow in motion and hope that the the target gets hit but you know it might not yeah (laughs) well that well that gets back to your you know what you said earlier and also in the book uh, about uh, uh, focusing on success or failure as opposed to creating a direction that that's that that distinction speaks to me based you know from from my from my practices it's like if you configure the goal of spiritual practice or religious activity or whatever um, in terms of specific uh, goals which then leads to the dis, the dis, the um, judgments about did I succeed? Did I fail? Yeah. How far did I get it right? How far did I get and it wrong? Do people agree with me or not? <laughs> do people? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's part of it. That's absolutely part of it. So it's like, um, but creating that direction is is like that is in, the effects of that are greater than than people realize. And and, yeah, and I, I want you. I want you to speak about that. Well, bit. you do. Well, yeah, the effects are, um, it's like a ripple, you know, you don't know that it's like the butterfly effect is the way I always think, mm-hmm. you know, the butterfly mm-hmm. flapping its wings can cause a hurricane, you know, like they say, because right. um, nobody really knows what causes hurricanes and how much a, a butterfly flapping its wings has to do with it. So I think, I think we do have an effect, but, but that measuring whether it's successful or, or, or not is, is a problem and it's very seductive. You know, you can get, you can get really stuck in there, especially, you know, the, with the social media giving you instant feedback about how many people like your opinion, you know, and mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not above that. You know, I've, I've found myself worrying about that stuff too, because, because I think that's how we're built. You know, we're, right. we're, we're a species of animal that cannot exist on its own, you know, I, I always I always think of it like that. If you if you heard about a panther surviving in the wilderness for a year without any contact with other panthers, you wouldn't be surprised. But if a human being did it, you'd be just like amazed. Yeah. You know, and because we're not built that way, we're not built to survive on our own. So we really really worry about what other people think and 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 uh, how we're seen by the community and all of that because it's it's uh, it's dri- you know it's built into our DNA to be concerned about that. So. But that that leads you to thinking, 
have I succeeded or, or have I failed? And part of the, the thing that, that the form of the, the, the Zen form of Buddhism that I practice gets into is this goallessness. You know, you're trying to do your practice, do your meditation practice, even without the idea of success or failure. So you don't even try to be successful at meditating. You just try to sit there for 40 minutes or whatever time <laughs> you've allowed yourself. And, uh, and if it doesn't seem the way you thought it should, well, that doesn't matter. You, know, you still did it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I keep going on tangents with all these questions. Oh, that's, that's okay. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, we can't, uh, we keep offering tangents. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but, but since you, since you brought that, uh, uh, subject up, uh, I, it does call to something that occurred to me while I was reading the book. And this, this came up to me in particular when I was reading the chapter on, uh, koans. Okay. Which I appreciated because, uh, you know, you just have this kind of matter of fact sensibleness about the interpretation of these koans. And it also came up when I was reading the, the chapter on the, uh, the whole shebang. Oh, yeah. Your yeah. rendering of what I guess other people call, uh, Dogen's chapter on dynamic activity. I think that's the Tanahashi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. We, we happen to have a Tanahashi copy here. So I pulled that out after I read your chapter just to, uh, see how that, uh, uh, Kind of yeah, fair translations. Yeah, I used it as a reference. I, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So, and what was coming up for me is that uh, you capture really nicely this flavor of goallessness. Yeah. And being present to now, and in the now, death and life are both coexisting, and you know things are arising and things are passing away simultaneously, and that yeah. is now. And, and it's it's a very beautiful image. And I, and where where I was what what occurred to me is if I look at other traditions like yeah. our own background resembles something more like the Gurdjieff work or the Fourth Way work and so there's okay. this notion built in there's a notion of self observation and observing you know the system without trying to disturb it mm-hmm. but there's also a notion of at some point you also take action in order to uh, let us say rewire some of the program. Yeah, yeah. And and I was trying to square that. Like on the one hand, you have this deep intuition about not trying to control the practice and mm-hmm. not and not and being present to what is. And yet there's this whole uh, you know pages of precepts in some traditions uh, yeah, that yeah. tell you how to behave. But there yeah, isn't. Yeah. But there isn't as much of an explicit uh, uh, description of. At some point, you need to actually, you know, exert the will in order to align yourself in a particular direction. So I'm interested how how that lands with you. Well, yeah, the way the way my teacher uh, Nishijima Roshi used to talk about the precepts was, uh, I think the image he used is is like, and I think Shunryu Suzuki uses the same one as a field, you know, that that's kind of got a fence around it. Um, and so you're free to do whatever you want in that field, but you can't go, you know, you can't crash through the fence. Uh, and the, the idea being that the, that if you, if you find yourself, as we always do, in a, in an ethical quandary where you don't, you know, you're, you're facing something and you really are lost and don't know what to do, that's when you refer to the precepts. You know, you go, well, the precepts say, you know, and then you can kind of go, Okay, well, I'll I'll do that then instead of 
you know, whatever else you might have been thinking of doing. But um, so so you, there is a, there is a certain there is a framework there, but it's it's sort of loose uh, because there's always there are always situations in which the precepts don't work. You know, there there are um, the example. I I don't know if I put this in the book. I know I put it in one of my books, but my my first teacher, the American one became a euthanasia technician because he felt like uh, that whole side of animal care was uh, done very sloppily and people were just, you know, injecting little puppies and kittens and throwing them in a garbage can and he wanted to do it ethically. But he, he, he found a situation where somebody would uh, come across a dog that had been hit by a car and they said, this dog can't possibly survive, but it's really, really in pain. Can you come out here and do something? So he went out I think in the middle of the night uh, with his little kit and he saw this dog in terrible condition and he, he gave the dog a, that, that lethal injection and as the dog was passing away, it started licking him on the hand, you know, in, in gratitude because he'd taken away the dog's pain. And so, so the, the reason I bring that up is the first ethical precept in all forms of Buddhism is do not kill, right? So if you, if you took that precept literally and said i must not kill then then my teacher would not have done what he did he would have said oh, i you know the precept says i cannot kill and he would have instead of relieved this dog of his suffering its suffering he would have uh, increased the dog's suffering so you you have to kind of look at the precepts in that fashion but know that really they the reason they exist in the form they exist is because really most of the time do not kill is good advice, you know, <laughs> you know, and just, uh, you know, but, but there, but there are even exceptions to that one. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't know. What was the other question about, about forms of, well, 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 just, yeah, I think you, you are kind of answering uh, the question in, in, in one sense. It, it was, it, it was more that uh, in practice mm -hmm. uh, that Zazen is a practice where you don't yeah, try yeah. to exert your will. You, but you do try to take a specific part. Right. You know. You're right. You are you are creating a con you are creating a frame. You're you're yeah. creating the fence around right. the field. I guess, yeah. I, guess, I guess in that sense, uh, um, I, I could look at the the precepts more in this or understand them more. It's, it's kind of like the directives for posture. You know, yeah. If you if you hold this posture, you'll facilitate a depth of experience. If you yeah, I think so. This, if you hold to this kind of behavior in your relations with the world you'll facilitate a certain kind of experience. Yeah, now that's go, really good. Now, I'm gonna, now go prove that to yourself. <laughs> I'm going to steal that and use it in my next book. But, but I, think, I think that's a good analogy because I think that's exactly what you do. And, and one of the things that sort of bothers me about back to the question of meditation in the West is that a lot of meditation teachers in, in the West are teaching meditation as if the posture is arbitrary. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've been in a I've been in a place that they used to invite me to give talks in this one place um, in in L.A. and I'd uh, I'd be giving my talk and people would just be in the sloppiest positions. I, I we'd, we would meditate first, right? So you do the meditation for like 20 minutes and then I'd give a talk, and I'd see these people, you know, meditating in in air quotes in you know just by not even just laying on the floor, but sort of like in this ragged. You know, position and I'm going well that's not really 
you know, you have to have a certain amount of, of discipline and, and the, the posture and that stuff isn't arbitrary. You know, there's a, there's a reason for that to be there because like you say, it facilitates a certain state of mind because body and mind are not two separate things. That's, you know, one of the ideas that Western culture really firmly believes in, but I think is, is absolutely false is that, that the body and mind are two distinct entities. Uh, they're, they are, they are very much intertwined. So, so taking a posture with your body affects how your mind is, is going to work and how your experience is going to be. And yeah, well, one of the things about the precepts in, and Zazen is a lot of people like to say that Zazen is a state in which you can't break any of the precepts. Like if you're doing Zazen, there's, there's no way to break a Buddhist <laughs> precept. So. Unless you're sitting on a small animal, I guess. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you probably find a way. <laughs> of course. Oh, very creative. Well, well, but, but this is, uh, uh, reminding me that in, that in, uh, uh, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, you, um, you have this discussion about Zen, um, versus other forms of Buddhism. And, and one of the questions that came up for me was, um, because you mentioned precepts just now. Um, my understanding is that Japanese Zen, and you can tell, you can explain to the extent that I may be mistaken about this, the, 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 the commitment to the, whatever it is, 250 or 270 precepts that in other monastic traditions of Buddhism is understood to be central. It's not yeah. quite the same. No. In, in Japanese Buddhism. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about that relationship no. to the precepts in terms of that distinction. Yeah, it's tricky because it's, it's also a kind of a controversial thing that Japanese Buddhism, um, that it, it comes from a certain aspect of Japanese history where the, uh, the, the rules, the precepts for monks were up till a certain point in, in Japanese history were a matter of law. So a person who was an ordained Buddhist priest who broke the broke certain precepts was considered to not just be breaking his religious precepts, but breaking the law. Mm. And there were, there were penalties for that, you know, including mm. the death penalty in some cases in, in very ancient times. Um, and, and part of this has to be, this is so complicated, but it's kind of interesting, I think. Uh, Japanese society is very stratified, you know, and they had a kind of a caste system. Mm -hmm. And the one way you could get out of the caste system is to become a monk. Right. And they didn't, they didn't want people to just arbitrarily become monks so that they would, you know, get rid of their caste obligation. So that's why, you know, this, this whole thing kind of came up. And during the Meiji Restoration, they dropped all of that. And they were also trying to break the power of the, of the clergy and of the Buddhist clergy in Japan. So, and I never really quite understood the relationship of that, but the, the final result was that the precepts are kind of by Japanese Buddhists very lightly held. You know, you can, mm -hmm. uh, you can be a Buddhist monk in Japan and be married, for example, yeah, whereas right. in the rest of Asia, I think pretty much, I think there may be some exceptions, uh, monks are required to be celibate. Right. Uh, and, uh, and Japanese Buddhist monks are not required to be celibate. 
so you know that's that's one really big example of it um and i i don't know i i think i think i, I don't think that means japanese buddhists are less committed personally to the the precepts you know i i i just think it's a different approach to the precepts i don't know <coughs> sorry i've sorry. had a cough for a while so talking like this is hard <coughs> so so it sounds like you're saying that 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 um there's a there's a i mean who who has a mind who, who can hold all the 200 and how 200 however there are many yeah, there are okay. precepts um i think there's more if you're a nun than if you're a, right, a, right, a male right. monk that sort of thing uh in any event who can hold that in in your mind so i guess i'm hearing you say that in japan this this historical trajectory ended up in a promoting an attitude where you're looking for the core or the or or the the ideal would be to look for the core direction of the yeah, yeah. precepts and, and that that's how that gets configured. Um, but then, of course, we have Japanese Zen coming to the United States. Yeah. And um, do you think that that's had some that's played some part in the in the ways in which that's not that Japanese Zen in the U.S. is the only Buddhist um, tradition that has been a context for controversy to arise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm wondering if you think that 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 has any any bearing on the issue and the ethical quandaries that Buddhism has faced, um, or is that all just about teachers, basically? Well, it might have a, an an effect. I you know I don't know. Uh, it, it it might. I, you know, I think I think the question is whether individuals are truly committed to the to the precepts or not. Because you could you could take the precepts as a matter of a vow, you know, where you take a public vow like they do in some forms of Buddhism mm -hmm. to uphold, you know, all the precepts and then still break them because you're not you're not really committed to it. So I don't know if if the only solution to that problem is is to make people take a public vow to commit um it, but there there might be there might be a, the case that people um often God, i don't want to get into trouble so i have to say this diplomatically i think oftentimes when if you look at the lineages that are having some of these troubles you'll you'll find that you know the guy that you're reading about in the new york times today he isn't the first one in this lineage to have mm -hmm. these problems you right. know and you'll you'll find it goes it goes way back. I mean, this is especially true for a certain lineage I'm I'm thinking of right now. Um, I I can I bet I could guess it, but that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I won't impose that. Yeah, but so so you you know you have you have that too. So so it depends on if the if the whole lineage is is committed to the ethics and and I don't know. Dogen two books ago I wrote a book called Don't Be a Jerk, and that was my paraphrase of Dogen's. Dogen wrote this uh, essay called Shoaku Makusa, which usually is translated as uh, do not engage in wrongdoing. And I turned that to don't be a jerk. And he says that this simple phrase, the Shoaku Makusa, don't engage in wrongdoing, is the essence of all the precepts and it's the really yeah. the only one you need. 
Uh, and, he, and he argues that, that as long as you keep to that, you don't really have to worry about the specifics of the, the precepts. Just in every interaction, don't be a jerk. You know, don't, don't do the wrong thing. So, yeah, I don't know if this is the, the cause of the, the trouble. I, I, think, I think sometimes it's the personalities that are involved, too. You know, they might be troubled personalities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I, it, it's, it's a hard question because, you know, the, it seems that when people are engaged in relationship, uh, particularly when the issues are sexual uh, issues, you know, that's, there's, there's a power differential often, but yeah. there's also, but there's also, you know, a, uh, two people, two responsible people. And, yeah. and, and how do you, you know, what I'm loath to make a rule about that. And I, and I guess I have, I, I see many sides to the question and uh, it's actually an interesting, this kind of leads into a, this interesting topic about one of the trends in American Buddhism mm -hmm. is uh, uh, kind of tacking towards the Protestant in a sense, um, mm -hmm. in terms of trying to have formal bodies and review bodies oh, yeah. that are, yeah. are policing the ethics of, uh, of uh, uh, teachers and you know, like almost like having an ethics hotline for uh, yeah. uh, 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 all Buddhist communities. Uh, what do you think of that development? Do you think that is that a good thing, a bad thing, a neutral thing? Is it? Um, I'm I'm a little yeah. I'm not. I haven't joined any of those organizations, which is probably you know says something right there because there's there's two. <laughs> There's two within the Zen American Zen community that exist, and I haven't joined either one of them. But they're trying to be large sort of organizations that police the activities of the, of the Buddhists and and trying to have a, a certain amount of power. And that's that's the problem I see in those things because there is there there's the one aspect of you don't want people to be able to like that guy uh, Zen Master Rama. I guess I can talk about him since he's dead now. Who was who was you know who made a lot of money, but he was no it was no sort of Zen master. He didn't right. have any sort of lineage or, or anything, but because of how loose everything was, he just called himself Zen master Rama and everybody just accepted that he was a Zen master. And then he did all, he did a lot of unethical stuff. So you don't want stuff like that to be able to happen. So, so in order to stop that, you, you say, we're going to have this body that's going to uh, be able to, revoke your membership if you do wrong and we're going to make that membership an important thing so that people will go to your temple and look for the you know the seal <laughs> on the on the wall that says you're a member in good standing of of the organization and and that that's going to solve the problem which it i don't i don't i, I i'm not sure that's going to work <laughs> you know because people will still do things, and 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 usually those sorts of organizations very quickly devolve into into power games, you know. So, so it it becomes less about being ethical than about pleasing the people who are in power, and and I, I don't really want to be be part of an organization where I'm going to have to worry about what, you know, these people in in positions of power are going to think of what I do. Uh, well, that's that, kind of an arbitrary authority. I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and um, I have—I mean, not that there's some such a thing in the in our 
uh, overall tradition, but um, but I would be equally reluctant to um, to join such an organization. But but I'm wondering then slightly slight expansion of this topic. You know, in um, I think it's the chapter on crazy wisdom mm -hmm. and letters to a dead friend about Zen. You 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 bring up the issue, and we can talk about crazy wisdom in a minute, maybe. But mm -hmm. but you bring up the issue of the proper role of institutions, yeah, and and even the size of institutions. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to the Mystical Positivist. I'm your host Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Brad Warner about his latest book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center in Dogen Sangha, Los Angeles. He's the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several other books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and The Truth About Reality. Sit down and shut up. Punk rock commentaries on Buddha, God, truth, sex, death, and Dogen's treasury of the right Dharma eye. And don't be a jerk and other practical advice from Dogen, Japan's greatest Zen master. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded conversation with Brad Warner about his latest book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center and Dogen Sangha, Los Angeles. He is the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several other books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and The Truth About Reality, Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye, and Don't Be a Jerk, and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. You bring up the issue, and we can talk about crazy wisdom in a minute, maybe. But mm -hmm. but you bring up the issue of the proper role of institutions, yeah, and and even the size of institutions. The, and, and by institutions, I I mean something as simple as a zendo, yeah, yeah, or a whole grouping of Zen centers or or other Buddhist institutions, and I and and you. I mean, you articulate something really interesting about that, but but why don't you talk about it here in the context of this discussion? Uh, yeah, it's 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 a kind of a funny uh, thing for me because I just I, I I've been teaching uh, in Los Angeles since uh, 2005, I guess, is when I I started. So it's been you know a while now, 15 years, I guess, officially. Mm -hmm. um, but it's only been recently that we've started to we, we've got a center now you know we actually rent a place and before that we were just uh, going to different places and holding our meetings there but now we have a place we don't own it but but it, it's sort of a permanent fixture and so I've I've found that this changes a lot of things and I I really have resisted 
any sort of institutional stuff, but then you find like, oh, you got to have some of these sort of rules in place or else it goes crazy. And, and the bigger it gets, the more, the more these rules start to, to change and transform into, you know, you can no longer just walk up to the guy and say, hey, stop doing that. You know, you've got to have a, a law against it, you know, and it becomes, it becomes uh, very weird. And I don't know. I'm sort of rambling now because I'm thinking about last night. Last night we had to, uh, you're, you're taping this ahead, but this is this New Year's Day now that we're mm-hmm. talking. And we had this New Year's Eve fit. And I did, I, I don't think any of us expected very many people to show up. The idea was to sit from 8.30 to midnight. And I was shocked at how many people uh, showed up. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was more people than I've ever seen in our place. And and I had to give a talk uh, to these these people, I, I don't, I didn't even count. I mean, normally, normally we'll have between five and 10 people on any given, you know, even with me having the books out and everything, that's about all I can expect on a, you know, a given Saturday when we have our normal Zen thing. Uh, and so there must have been 30 or, or more people there last night. And, and I just hated it, you know, because <laughs> I, 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 I had to give a talk, you know, and I, I'm, and I, I just like, I don't, I don't know what to say to these people. You know, there, there is too, there's too many. <laughs> and, and, and it's when you get, when you get these institutions that try to be big, then you have to, you have to create, for example, a hierarchy. Everybody hates hierarchies, but, but you, you try getting a bunch of humans to do something together without having some sort of a, a person in charge and a person whose job is to do this and, and, you know, mm-hmm. division of labor and all that. I don't think there's any other way to do it. So, so once you get hierarchies involved and people start believing in hierarchies and they, they think, well, because this guy is in charge of, of the group, then he's the, the top guy. And it, you know, you, it just gets very ugly very quickly. So I, I personally, I don't know what to do about that in an overall way, but my, my personal way of dealing with it, which is probably not that admirable, but I'll, I'll lay it out is, is I sometimes deliberately try to scare people. <laughs> you know, you know I, I, if, if I think things are getting too popular and I do this almost without thinking about it and, and sort of sometimes surprises me uh, when I, when I'll find myself doing it and going, Oh God, I did it again. You know, I'll say something that I know a lot of the group isn't going to like, you know, a lot of sort of newbie types who are coming to be spiritual here. They're not going to like it if I say, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but you know, I'll say something and then I'll notice, Oh good. There's not as many people here <laughs> next week um, because I want to keep it small. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I also have this double life, which is, which is that I'm an author and I'm trying to make a living. So uh, I have to sell a, a certain number of books and get, and get a certain number of people to like my uh, YouTube videos and blogs. So that they'll send me a donation uh, in order that I can pay the rent. Yeah. And, um, and so, so I, 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 I think at this point I found the sweet spot and I'm just trying to keep it there, <laughs> you know, but, but other institutions will, I think for often, you know, reasons that seem very nice and noble, they want to expand. You know, you want to teach the, the, you want the teachings of Buddhism to reach everybody, you know, and so you'll, 
San Francisco Zen Center is a good example of this. They just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I think it took a lot of their membership by surprise, uh, this, this rapid growth that they, have, that they had, especially in the, between the late 60s and late 70s. So it was a, a decade of really rapid growth of that place. And if you've read the book, Shoes Outside the Door, there's a whole, you know, that, that's a whole book on how things really went wrong at the mm -hmm. San Francisco Zen Center, but they've, they've managed to, to kind of land on their feet and, and they're, you know, they've fixed a lot of those problems. But, um, you know, they weren't ready to become an institution and they found they had to become an institution and now they have, you know, this whole hierarchy and, and everything's very good. Right. Well, uh, you know, one of the questions I have about that is, and, and you, you touch on this, in one of the uh, letters in uh, letters to a dead friend about Zen about um, uh, you're doing a retreat and you just it's, this is a, a kind of a throwaway line but you're talking about having enough time to do Dokusan yeah. with uh, people in a retreat and it was which, kind of which, which for listeners we should just say is an interview with yeah, yeah, audience, yeah, yeah, you and and the uh, I guess it's pertinent to this question because uh, we both come from a very small, like mom and pop spiritual school. So yeah. we had, you know, our teacher was someone we had intimate access to 24 yeah, seven. Yeah. Um, and when I read, you know, your, your history is like uh, with Nishijima, you, you were, uh, it seemed like you had, you know, complete access whenever yeah, yeah, you that wanted. Was, yeah. Yeah. That was and, exactly the way it was. Yeah. And, and in a larger institution, it, you know, it, it becomes very corporate, you know, that, that, yeah, yeah. There's something intimate in an interaction with a teacher that uh, is immediate and it's about you know, ordinary things in life. And yeah. when everything is kind of more ceremonially on large, I, my concern is I, I, something different is happening there. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I personally, I think that's, that's, that's the only way to do it is to have, you know, these small groups where everybody, uh, knows each other and and you do have access to the teacher and and stuff like that I think that's important and I think if you lose that then then you you're, you're right you've created something else you know I hear about uh, Thich Nhat Hanh for example doing these retreats where there's like 500 people at a, at a retreat and I, I'm and if I project myself into that position because I'm basically you know I don't want to compare myself to the great Thich Nhat Hanh, but it's the same role, you know, it's the yeah. same, you know, trying to lead this, this group of Zen practitioners. I couldn't, there's nothing I could do with a group of 500, you know, there'd be, be way too much. You know, I can't, like I said, you, like you brought up uh, having enough time to do Dokusan, which are these little meetings you have with each member of the retreat. If you had 500 people, you can't, it's impossible. You're not going to be able to meet with all of them. And right. so you'd have to, you have a hierarchy immediately, whether you wanted it or not, of people who got to have the meeting. You know, you either eliminate Dokusan altogether, eliminate the meetings altogether, or you have this hierarchy which becomes like the in-group that has access to the teacher. And then, you know, it just gets, spins out of control into something even if you don't want it. So I really think the only, the only solution I can think of is to just keep things small and hope that you can manage that way. But, but, you know, personally, on a personal level, it feels very shaky sometimes because I have to keep just enough people, yeah. <laughs> you know, coming uh, and not alienate everybody. But uh, 
if you if you if you let it get really big, then you can feel like, oh, well, there's this big support system, and we're never gonna, you know, go out of business. Uh, but uh, <laughs> well, that's a that's a telling phrase right there. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. I mean, but I think that's what it what it is. You know, you you have to, you know, I, I don't want to run what I do as a business. I my what I try to do is keep the author stuff and the Zen teacher stuff separate if I can. But of course, that's impossible well, to do completely. So, but that's interesting because, um, you know, I started off this conversation by asking you whether, you know, to what extent you thought this book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, met the initial impulse that you had to write a primer because you had, you described how you kept going to Zen talks and you'd talk about something basic to Buddhism and people were going, huh? What? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so, um, but it seems to me that, I mean, these are the kinds of topics you bring up in this book, in your other books as well. And isn't that exactly what the kind of primer material that people should be looking at? <laughs> Maybe as so. A, as, well, I, I, I'm serious about it. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. because if we think, if we can figure uh, Buddhism as a religion, then yeah, you're just going to learn the doctrines or you're going to learn the practices and stuff like that. And yeah. yet, and yet all this apparatus that you've just been discussing mm -hmm. about how people actually interface with and interact and, and, and create a relationship to the teaching in themselves mm -hmm. and in their social context, you know, that's, that's utterly crucial. That is primer material. Yeah. No, no, you're right. You're right. I, I, I think so. And I, I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting the way it's going, the way Buddhism is developing in in America. I, I've been going to Europe a lot too. Well, that's what you know the book is mm -hmm. partly about. All these trips I've been taking to Europe for the last ten years, and I think they're they're a little bit behind us in the in terms of it, it got there a little later. Mm -hmm. Buddhism it got to Europe a little later than it got to the U.S. But uh, the same things are happening where, like the the only model we have is a church you know so we we look at, right. at buddhism and go okay well this is a kind of church so churches are run like this so let's do these things and and i think a lot of it is done without putting a whole lot of thought into it you know they just think oh well it's you know it's, it's like this this is how we we run a church um and it's not you know i did this video recently where i where i talked about the the word dojo because in in japan you'll often hear a zen a zen place called a zen dojo mm -hmm. and people understand that word from the martial arts you know the dojo where you go to practice the martial arts and i think that's a better model for understanding what zen is than a, a model of a church you know you're you're going to this place to practice the thing and it's you know it has to be a certain way uh and it's it's not exactly the same as a, a church and you know maybe that's where we're going wrong we either we either want it to be a church or we want it to be a form of psychiatry or psychology well that's a, that's another whole issue but i but i also want to make a distinction within the the church metaphor which is the catholic church which could be you could semi-relate to the guru model in other words there's the infallible the, the infallibility potential of the pope or the head of yeah. the church and then there's the protestant model Stuart Stuart sort of referenced that earlier, 
where you might have a board of direct, something like a board of directors yeah, who, yeah. Who, are, who are basically hiring and firing um, the minister, the, the, the ministers, the pastors or whatever. And, and, and so, and, and so, and so, but, but I, that's why I like you taking it away from that, um, that, that metaphorical model and putting it in terms of, of the place where people come together to practice. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about when you, when you say the Protestant uh, version is kind of what the default is in, in a lot of Zen centers is, is to have it like that. But then there's this kind of, I remember having this discussion with Nishijima Roshi in Japan where people wanted to sort of form the Japanese group along those lines. And he said something like a, a Zen, a Zen center is, or a Zen temple is not a democracy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, the idea being that you can't really there's there's certain things you can decide uh, as a committee and then mm -hmm. work that way but there's certain other things that don't work that way and sort of deeper spiritual truths shouldn't be decided by committee you know whereas whereas how you're going to spend the money probably should be decided by committee you know so you have well, that, well i mean that's a that's an interesting distinction and possibly a controversial one because mm -hmm. You know, so many of the boards that got us established, uh, I think of like the San Francisco Zen Center, um, you know, after uh, the the whole ordeal with Richard Baker, it, it yeah. seemed like their, their solution was to have a board, yeah. select, you know, select an abbot. And it seems like there's this an attempt to uh, uh, exercise control. Yeah, yeah in a way that seems to be uh, antithetical to the, what I, what comes through in your book, certainly the uh, kind of wild unpredictable nature of what Zen is pointing to. And yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to disparage the San Francisco Zen center because I think they're, they're trying to find their way and they're, they're very sincere and they're trying to do the best they can. But I think, I think you're right. You do, you do have this kind of uh, the, the committees that they formed tend to overlap between, you know, trying to decide the practical things that committees should decide on, and then also sort of working on the proper interpretation of the teachings, you know, so that everybody can, can be in line with the proper interpretation of Dogen, for example. And, and I, that, that's where I, I find it a bit iffy. That's, that's kind of always my argument uh, with that. I think, I think, uh, I think it has to be a bit wild and unpredictable for it to work. And that's, you know, part of the problem is that opens the door for abuses and, and right. like that. So there's, you know, it, it, it becomes very tricky, but if it becomes too predictable, then I don't think it's Zen anymore because you know, you do, you're just kind of, teaching it by rote and right so where do you where do you where do you find that balance i mean that that, that that's really the uh the, yeah I guess. Well, but in your in your book i mean i, I think you you engage with it in, in a in an honest way in asking the questions and restating the questions and expanding the questions in other words this is a this is something that you can't settle on yeah to me that, that that's the effective way to move forward. Yeah, you can't. And that's that's the problem is you can't you can't make a nice neat solution and wrap it up in a bow for these kind of problems. You know, you're just going to have to face each one as they come up and try to deal with them. You know, as best you can. Uh, 
Right. And well, you just ra also raised the issue of uh, psychiatry or, or yeah. psychology. And, and that, of course, has been a huge, has had a huge influence on Zen and Buddhism in, in America over the yeah, last yeah. 30 plus years. And, um, and similarly, um, if, if you're turning Buddhism into, into psychology, then you're also losing this, um, yeah. this sense of a commitment to something beyond our human relationships, it seems to me. Yeah, well, a lot. Of, I mean, there is that. That's the two pushes I see in American Buddhism is, is to turn it into a church or to turn it into therapy, and then they'll <laughs> they'll start saying, well, you know, the the ethical the ethics for therapists are you know A, B, and C. So now Buddhist teachers should follow the the therapist ethics, uh, which which are are probably in in most cases uh, going to be what you ought to do. Mm -hmm. But if you if you make it too rigid, then then you lose the the ability that the freedom that it needs to have. You know, therapy is one thing, and Buddhism has certainly some overlaps with with therapy, but it's not therapy. You know, you, you can't you, you shouldn't uh, approach them the same way. So I, I don't know what the answer is, uh, but I do I do resist. It, it being turned into therapy as much as I resist it being turned into a, a church, you know, because they're, they're, they're not the same things. So, so maybe uh, this would be a good, um, you know, to go to the other extreme, then you write a chapter about crazy wisdom mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the book and uh, the, ex the justification for crazy wisdom is exactly yeah. this, you know, X factor which yeah. uh, you don't want to squeeze out and you don't want to control out. And yet, as you, as you point out, that's a, it's an occasion for um, also uh, things that don't work out so well. Yeah. That's, that's the, the tricky bit is, is, uh, and, and I think that's, I, God, I, I feel like if you, if you enter in a, into a relationship with a Zen teacher, there is a certain amount of risk involved and there, there ought to be a certain amount of risk involved. And, and that sounds terrible, but, but it's a, it's a, it's an intimate relationship. If you're going to have, if you're going to take it to that level and anytime you're going to enter into any sort of an intimate relationship with another human being, there's a certain, there's, there's the danger that people are going to get hurt. And you, you know, if you're, if you're a, a decent person, you're going to try to make, to not hurt anybody but it it could happen and misunderstandings will arise and all sorts of things will arise and if you try to build you know, what i see happening in a lot of american buddhism is they're they're going to try to build a structure that's going to prevent uh, anything untoward from happening in this relationship but in in order to do that you you stifle a lot of what what is possible within that relationship so I I feel like, and everybody gets mad at me when I say this, but I I think it's it, it has to come from both sides. It has to come from both the student and the teacher. You hope, you know, you recognize that the teacher has a certain amount of of power that uh, that just comes along with the position, but you you also recognize that it doesn't it doesn't all come you know not all of these ethical quandaries have come 
solely from the teachers just being bad. You know, there's there's a whole there's a whole thing going on when when these things happen, and and sometimes you have people who, you know, in my estimation, are probably genuinely not not very nice people who who end up in the position of being a, a Buddhist teacher. But I think that's rare. I think I think what what more ordinarily happens is is that you're just getting these intimate relationships and they're spinning out of control. And if there's a lot of them, there's, there's more of a chance of, of things going out of control. Um, and I, you know, and, and I, I can't remember where I ended up with that chapter on crazy wisdom. Cause I, I, I'm, I'm a bit leery of it because I think it's, it's very easy to use it as an excuse, you know, to say, well, this is just crazy wisdom. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and, and then just doing whatever you like, uh, so you don't want that. And, and, and I think it just comes down to you have to, if you, if you decide to enter into a relationship with a Buddhist teacher, you have to be aware that there's a certain amount of danger and that you as the student uh, have to also be committed to ethical behavior. You know, so. Um, I think. So both, I think mm, go ahead. I was just going to say, so both sides are responsible. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, granting that that the teacher side may have there may be more implicit power yeah, yeah. um but um nevertheless it takes two to tango number one and 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 number two if you put all the power if you project that all the power is held on the one side then that yeah. completely um disempowers the student side and that's that is the antithesis of of understanding how to act responsibly because that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the goal is for the student to act responsibly ethically generously kindly etc yeah 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 i mean that's exactly it and and you're right you you want to you don't want to take a, the power away from the students that's that's one of the things i found with my teachers uh, is that i would try to give them power over me you know mm-hmm, I, I, mm-hmm. I i can retrospect recognize several points along the way where i really tried to give my power away to to tim my first zen teacher and to, and to nishima roshi my other zen teacher i and they refused it and mm-hmm. if you were in that position it it can feel it doesn't feel good sometimes you know you you, you try to give your power away to this great teacher and say oh great master i surrender to you and he goes go away, you know, <laughs> you know, go home, get out of here. Uh, and you go, what? But I'm trying to give, you know, I'm surrendering to you. No, I don't want that, you know, get out. And, and I find myself in, in the role I, I am in now doing that to people a lot. You know, I can recognize they're trying to, to give their power away from me. And, and I will, I will be firm and say, I'm not taking that power from you. And most of the time it's, it's okay, but I've had a few incidents uh, where it got ugly, you know, where, where somebody mm-hmm. was, was trying to give me power and I refused it and they got angry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and then I have to deal with this angry person who, who's now, you know, <laughs> usually because usually I have an internet presence, it usually involves somebody going on the internet and, and <laughs> saying all these terrible things about right. me. Well, isn't that, (laughs) and and isn't that another, uh, uh, yet another consideration that we have to now deal with only in the last 15 or 20 years Mm. is, is how the various forms of of social media interaction 
can, sure, yeah. can hinge on this can whole question. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking earlier that, that you, cause you were talking about sort of separating the author role that you hold and the um, teacher role mm-hmm. that you hold. And, um, and that makes sense to me. Although actually I was also thinking of it in terms of, well, the author role that you're manifesting seems to me to be to create inspiration to point out to people that, oh yeah, you can be responsible for your um, manifestation in ways that maybe you didn't think about before as part of it. Anyway, that's part of the author role that I see you operating. I'm, and so um, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued if that, if that resonates at all with you. And if not, how else would you think about the author role? Well, geez, uh, it's hard to say because the, you know, the author role is sort of, I mean, specifically to me, I, I, I wrote a book about Zen because I was, I was trying to be a novelist and my novels weren't selling. I mean, that was, that was one of the reasons there were, there were other reasons, but that mm-hmm. was, that was certainly part of it. And I actually didn't think that this Zen book that I wrote, which became Hardcore Zen, had any chance of, of selling. So um, so I was doing it more as so, an exercise. To, so it wouldn't come back to bite you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was, I was kind of doing, I, when I was writing it, I was thinking, well, nobody's going to ever see this anyway, so I can kind of just do what I want with it. But, um, but so then I, then I found myself in this, in this weird role that I didn't know what to do to do with and, mm-hmm. it, and it's and it's sort of it's it's strange because I mean there's there's certain there's people who I sit with in a, on a regular basis who I know by name and uh, I'm, I'm pretty mm-hmm. forgetful about names so sometimes I don't know everybody by name but but I I uh, but I know who they are and I know something about them and then there's this other world of people who are interacting with me who you know, they send me emails and, and stuff and I, I don't even see a face and sometimes I can't even guess, you know, the gender or something. I don't know who this person is who's sending me this. I have no idea of their background or their history or what tone of voice they're trying to ask me this question in. So it, it's, a, it's a funny uh, sort of thing. Uh, boy, uh, but you're talking about responsibility. I mean, there is a, I think I do have a certain amount of responsibility in, in that role, but it's a different sort of responsibility you know I, I'm trying to I'm trying to speak authentically and not lie to people right. um, and not present myself as anything other than what I am and, and trying to provide a, a certain amount of entertainment you know there's a, you know that that also goes into it um, but it's not the same as as the teaching role in which well, for example, the factor of entertainment has, has no place at all in, in that role. So I'm not trying to entertain these people or make them laugh or, or make them spend money on my product. I'm just trying to, to see where we can go. Okay, I think that's too narrow a definition of entertainment, personally, but that's just my view. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but, but, I mean, but, but, but here's you another. You could be right, yeah. Here's another here's another thought that I was having uh-huh. earlier in this conversation. So I don't know why it came up as we're talking, but I realized that that my my view of the reason I like your books mm-hmm. is that like you have these chapters and you you start the chapter with a theme and you explore the theme and then you you have 
a conclusion, but it's not like a logical progression <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly um, because what you're actually doing is demonstrating how to grapple with or explore the theme that you start off with from a place where goallessness, as you were talking about before, mm -hmm. can actually manifest. In other words, you're demonstrating, this is a yeah. big thing in, in a fourth way, demonstration as opposed to yeah. explanation. So you're demonstrating in these chapters how a mind that has a commitment to direction, but not a goal, a specific narrowly defined goal, grapples with the issues that Buddhists have to deal with, or yeah, people yeah. interested in the issues that Buddhism deals with, yeah. do, do that. Yeah. So in that sense, and, and, and honestly, and you do it in a very entertaining way, right. does that devalue the entertainment aspect of it? The noble truths, does yeah, that yeah. devalue what you are demonstrating? Not at all. And in fact, I think it engages people and it helps them yeah. um, access that within themselves which resonates with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way, but I think you're right. I mean, there, there, is a, there is a sense in which I'm not trying to present anybody with, with a conclusion or lead them to a certain uh, conclusion. I'm just mm -hmm. trying to ask these questions of myself right. and put down it on paper how, how it works. Well, uh, yeah, also you're not, I don't think that... Uh, I mean, what you demonstrate, and that's what Rob is saying, is you're demonstrating that it's possible to talk about some very nuanced issues without having to reach a conclusion. Yeah, well, I, I think it's important not to reach a conclusion because you, your your conclusion is always going to be, uh, uh, what's the word? There's a word that begins with a P. Um, uh, your provisional. <laughs> provisional, that's the word I was thinking. Yeah, your, your conclusion is always going to be provisional. You, you know, it's gonna, it, it, it can only work for that particular situation that you find yourself in, and then, and then, you know, you use it, but then, and then, you know, it, it forms a basis for future action, but you don't want to be stuck with doing it always the same way because every situation is different. So, so when you have these deep questions, I mean, there really are no answers, you know, I, I, uh, I remember well, when I first, there are no final answers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right, right. There, there are answers, but there are no final answers. There, yeah. And, and I think that when I first got into this, that's one of the things I was searching for was the final answer, you know? And, yeah, right, right. And, and that's why I always love the reference of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, if you know that mm. book where they, they use the computer to find the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. And the answer is 42. Right. The computer comes up with. And, and I think that that's a really, that's a there's a deep lesson in that because that's that's how we kind of work with religions is we we kind of go oh well the answer is 42 but it isn't it isn't you know 42 is just one of the answers to the to the problem and 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 you have to kind of be flexible with it so so when when I'm writing a book about um about this stuff I'm I'm trying to to find the answer that works in the context of the book and and hoping that that maybe somebody comes away from that without not not 
seeing that answer that I've put forward as the answer, but seeing the methodology at which that answer was arrived That's at. That's precisely my point. Yeah. It's the methodology. Yeah. It's the demonstration of methodology. That's yeah. the key thing. Here. Yeah. But there's, a, there's another factor that I find. What I find compelling about letters to a dead friend about Zen is, and I think you, you in your afterward, you kind of acknowledge you, you came to this, that the because you're directing it to some like there's a there's a specific person um, or two people you have in mind that you're yeah. talking to you're saying all the things that part of you wished you could say yeah the person had ears to hear it um, and and so there's this heart connection uh, that is a little bit reminiscent and this comes out of the Buddhist tradition and it's something that we've adopted in our own tradition which is doing readings for the dead oh yeah yeah you know and I think about um, we're in the middle of that for a friend who died recently and doing a series of readings, some of which come out of the Buddhist tradition and some of which we've kind of cobbled together from our own fourth way tradition. But there's this sense of like establishing a connection and uh, having a conversation with someone who's died, which is a very real and vital thing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and when you tune into that, that, that sense of the heart connection, which doesn't, ultimately have a final answer yeah uh, uh comes through and that's what i find what I, what I found so engaging about the book was that uh um that conversational level really worked for transmitting a lot of interesting information about the tradition yeah well it was interesting i mean uh, talking about this just makes me think of the whole process of writing the book because when i decided to do this thing as a series of letters i wasn't i didn't really know where that was going to go and it was interesting to me on a personal level to to find out where it went as I'm writing it. And then I did this other thing with this book because I've, I've been doing my own audio books for the last few years. And I, it was a very last minute thing. I, I was, I'd finished the book and sent it off to New World Library. And I was about to go on a, another tour of Europe and I realized I'm going to a lot of the places that I wrote about in the book and I'm going to be doing lectures there. So instead of doing a normal lecture, I, I would take if the, if there's a, I'm just going to pick something arbitrary. If there's a chapter in the book that's written as if it's from Berlin, when the next time I'm in Berlin, I'm going to read that chapter to the mm -hmm. audience in Berlin and then use it as a jumping off point for, for the discussion that we're going to have. Mm -hmm. And then record it and make that into the audiobook, which which saves me a lot of work in terms of making the audiobook. But um, it also turned out to be really interesting because reading those aloud to audiences in in some cases was difficult. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, some of these some of these letters in my mind, I am communicating to to my friend. Yeah. You know, and it's it's written almost like a you know the way you write a letter you don't expect anybody else to read it now i knew i was writing a book and i knew other people were reading it we're going to read it but i also really tried to stay true to what i you know the 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 literary conceit that i've chosen to use you know to really mean it and and so i found myself in front of these audiences you know, and I'm looking as you're reading in front of an audience, I'm, I'm looking like three sentences ahead and I'm going, oh, Jesus, I don't know if I'm going to, really <laughs> to get that. You know, to get. And there were a couple of times where I, I don't think it really shows on the audio 
that I recorded, but I was choking up on a couple of them, you know, just trying mm-hmm. to get, you know, to get the, the words out yeah. um, in, in front of people. So, so this, this thing about communicating you know, readings for the dead, I, I, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but it's an interesting thing. Cause like, like I say, I'm a bit agnostic about what happens after we die. So I don't, Somebody brought this up at a talk I gave in England. They say, well, you, you know, you know, your, your friend isn't hearing these letters or reading these letters. And I go, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he is. Right. Uh, because, because uh, like I say, I'm a bit agnostic on, on what happens after one dies. I think the, the likelihood is, is fairly slim, but, but I don't, you know, I try to be honest. And, and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe in some sense he does hear this or, or maybe, you know, one of, one of my, uh, one, one of the sort of, I, I, I wouldn't put this as a Buddhist idea, but it's my idea informed by Buddhism is that, is that what we are, we imagine that we are this fixed single thing, you know, right. I'm, I'm here and you're there and, and, and all this other stuff. But I think we're actually much more spread out than that. So, so the, the pieces of what my dead friend was are, are, are still existing, you know, and, and they, they still can be accessed, although they're not in this nice, you know, tight little package like they were when he was alive. So, you know, so in a, in a sense, I really am saying something to him. Yeah. Well, like I that sounds weird, but no, no, I don't not, think. Not, I, well, not to us, but not, not to us, but that we're we're weird. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so so. But the point is that it seems to me. I mean, you could create a psychological frame. Oh, you're expressing what you feel like you'd like to express to this person, or maybe you didn't when they were alive, or yeah. or, or whatever, or, or or recontextualizing what you're thinking about that relationship. But to me, that doesn't have, that, that drains it of all the juice that makes it, makes it yeah. interesting. If you, if you, if you create that psychological, yeah. psychological understanding of what, what you're doing in that sort of context, I'm like you more inclined to think that the world is a bigger place than, than we know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a more interesting place to relate to. I mean, I have, you know, when I do these readings for the dead, I, I sometimes imagine that there's actually something that I'm getting something back. And, <laughs> yeah. and whether I'm just projecting it, whether it's my mind projecting it or not, I, there's it, no way. It for doesn't me to matter know. because the, the, the emotional reality is the emotional reality. I mean, the belief of whether it's true or not ontologically is kind of, um, uh, uh, beside the point, yeah, because, yeah. because I, I can't prove whether if I'm doing a reading for someone that they're hearing it. But like Rob said, I, I certainly sometimes feel emotionally like uh, they're right there and hearing yeah. me. And, you know, a lot of times you do the readings, you know, you do it for every day for 49 days, every month or every week for seven weeks, every month for seven months. And, you know, somewhat time along the lines, oh, they're no longer here. Okay, I can, I can, I can stop now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there may be something to that. And, and I always sort of, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of these, I mean, my sense of the, the world is that we are, we are seeing it in a certain way. And we assume that the way we're seeing things is correct. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I've done enough of this Zen practice that I no longer make that assumption. You know, right. I assume that, that I'm seeing it this way 
you know, for a reason, I suppose would be one way to put it, you know, that maybe there's some, some sort of uh, underlying logic to why I'm seeing the world this way, but I don't think that what I'm seeing is what it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I never, I never take that for granted. And I, and I always sort of uh, tread as if there's a lot more going on around me than I can possibly be aware of. <laughs> um, well, let me let me shift the topic a little bit, but not too not that far, perhaps. Um, your your chapter fourteen, I think it is, um, is about. Um, you, I mean, the title of the chapter is intuition, and you're talking about the distinction between the Sanskrit, the, the translation of the Sanskrit term prajna, um, oh, right. um, as wisdom or intuition. Yeah, and that's a really intriguing discussion because you, you relate that your teacher um, had this unusual translation of it as the word intuition. Yeah, yeah, he always favored intuition as as the translation of Prajna. And you're right, that's not the standard translation. But I think it sort of overlaps. And yeah, but he was really big on intuition. Well, that's, I, well but and then what that but that raises the question, what's the relationship between intuition and wisdom? Yeah, what is the, there's this phrase, I don't remember where it comes up, but it's the wisdom that knows at a glance is, mm-hmm. uh, is something that, that comes up in one of the sutras or somewhere. And, and I think that's kind of, I think that's the sort of wisdom it is. There's a certain, I, I think we have the ability to access a kind of, you know, I don't want to say, I almost said cosmic wisdom, but you know, it's sort of mm-hmm. a cosmic wisdom. It's sort of a wisdom mm-hmm. that's beyond our individual, our, our individuality and that it's, it's wiser than we could ever be. So it, if you can access that, it makes sense to trust it. But then again, I think this is where the precepts come in. If you were, if you were always unfailingly able to access that underlying wisdom, you wouldn't need the precepts at all. Mm-hmm. But I don't think any of us are. I don't, I don't, I get the sense from some of the things I've read of uh, the Buddha's recorded words that even he didn't, uh, he wasn't claiming to be, you know, 24 seven, you know, a, able to access that wisdom. Uh, so, so even he had trouble with it sometimes. And, and so if even he couldn't do it, then what, you know, what are the rest of us going to do? But I, I do think it exists. And, and Nishima Roshi was very into that idea that you always know the right decision to make. And I remember listening to him and going, I don't know the right decision to make always, you know, I, mm-hmm. but I think he's right. <laughs> uh, only only it's it's very difficult to access that you know that right decision ability that intuitive ability to to do the right thing because there's a lot going on and there's a lot of distractions and there's a lot of other stuff happening that uh, that can that can get you to kind of go the wrong way yeah, yeah i mean I, uh, my teacher had a similar uh, teaching didn't not phrase differently but but one of the things i i realized is what my mind projected onto that teaching was um, I should be able to make the right decision about anything. So what if I tell myself I need to decide that I'm going to go to the market tomorrow, mm-hmm. but then tomorrow I have this 
clear sense, you know, uh, a glance of the eye that, oh, no, I'm supposed to go do yeah. X or Y in, instead. So, so it's like, but, but the mind thinks that we can project what to do about some situation in the future, whether yeah. it's five seconds away or five years away, and that that's going to have the same um, uh, clarity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it just isn't. And and if you if you try to set things up that way you, you, and stick to it rigidly, you'll you'll do the wrong thing. Right. So you see, so you have to be flexible. And then people are really, you know, they don't like the phrase situational ethics. You know, I remember hearing <laughs> people go on like, oh, that's just situational ethics. But I think all ethics are situational yeah. <laughs> ethics. You have to be, you know, it just, uh, I mean, you can, you can say certain things that are almost always true. But like I said, with the story about Tim and the dog, you know, there's there's going to be exceptions even to the things that are really basic like that. Yeah. Well, we have about uh, uh, five minutes to uh, uh, wrap up. Time has flown by. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to just remark that I've reflected on, you know, you have a reputation in some circles of being sort of a bad boy uh, of Zen writer and mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff. Uh, what comes across for me reading your material is um, uh, this kind of what I'd call Midwest sensibility. <laughs> yeah. And and I kind of, and what's interesting to me is I, the reason I reflect on that is like I, I grew up mainly in Colorado. Rob grew up in the Midwest uh, mm. until, he, until he was a teenager and then moved to California. And there's a kind of, I don't know, a groundedness that... Uh, and a pragmatism and a not putting on certain kinds of errors that I yeah. kind of resonate from that, that kind of cultural tradition. And yeah. I'm just kind of interested in, in if, if you see that in your voice, because every time you mention Akron, yeah. you know, or something like that, you know, it's, it's like, there's this, this place of, uh, of, of kind of what I might consider where American Zen would emerge from. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because I, I I do think that's true because I I you know I had this weird growing up as as you know you probably know because reading the books but you know mm -hmm. I, I was born in Ohio then it, I think when we were when I was seven we moved to Nairobi Kenya and lived there for four years and then came back and then in my adulthood I lived for in Japan for eleven years but still the place that I've spent most of the time is in and around Akron, Ohio. So there's this yeah. sort of like that's that thing that's that's there. And I used to sort of rebel against it. You know, I remember being a teenager going, geez, I wish I'd been born in California and, and, and stuff. I even wrote a song at one point when I was uh, doing those albums that never got put out on an album, but it, the, the, the first line was, I should have been born in California. You know, I'm going, oh. Uh, so but there is that that sort of groundedness. I mean, there's 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 drawbacks to it as well, but there's a certain sense of ordinariness and a, a certain sense of of, of value uh, to yeah. ordinariness, which I think is really important. And you know, some of it manifests in a negative way, as as anybody who sort of stands out in a place like that, like I did, gets you know gets pushed around. Yeah. Um, which is probably why I ended up leaving it. <laughs> yeah. But but I'm also glad that I had that that grounding growing up uh, and and understand the the value of of ordinariness, because I think I think a lot of what I see 
I mean, Zen sort of started in America, in California, and there's that right. sort of, there is that sort of ungrounded West Coast <laughs> aspect to a lot of American Zen, you know, uh, and and I think I think maybe Zen could do well with a bit of an infusion from from the Midwest of going, you know, stop that, you know, just, just you know. right. Well, that, actually, that's that's kind of what I feel like you're doing. Yeah, and, yeah, and 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 I and I appreciate that. Uh, it, it, it's uh, because it is an authentic voice and it's a uh, a unique voice, but one that I think brings people closer to Zen and, and closer to Buddhism than, you know, a, you know, a more uh, highfalutin kind of approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I try and my, my, my first teacher was also in Ohio. And so, right. you know, he, he was, he taught it that way and he understood it that way. So it was really, that was really useful too. Yeah. Well, um, so we're almost out of time. Uh, you did mention um, that you, or you, it, it was implicit in a, a remark you made earlier that you are working on another book, which would not be surprising given that, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but if, if you just want to mention a title or working title or no, topic. I'm always working on something, you know, I have, okay. I, I, have I have a couple of crazy ideas uh, that, I, that I'm working on, but they're probably not well formed enough to Okay. To, to, yeah, to disclose because some, sometimes if you put it out there too soon, then yeah, then, uh, it's, sure, yeah, that's the way to kill it. But I am working. I'm always working on another another book. So you know, well, cer certainly on. for any of our listeners, letters to a dead friend about Zen is a, a great read, and uh, it's very it, it's a it's a very both uh, it, it's engaging because it has the personal aspect. Yeah. And and um, it talks about, as I was pointing out earlier, it talks about issues that are the actual issues that people have to deal with um, if they're right. going to engage with uh, Zen in America, as opposed well, to you. some, as Stuart said, highfalutin yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. theoretical ideas. Anyway, well, thank you for joining us. Well, on that was this has been a lot of fun, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It's, it's a good one. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Kudnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a pre-recorded conversation with Brad Warner about his latest book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center and Dogen Sangha Los Angeles. He is the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several other books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and The Truth About Reality, Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Drugs, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye, and Don't Be a Jerk and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff, meeting monthly on the first Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., though our next meeting is scheduled for January 8, 2020, at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol, California. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. 
We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us once a month at Many Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about this realistic path to the mystical heart. And later in the week at the Thursdays at Many Rivers event in Sebastopol, Triggers, How We Can Stop Reacting and Start Healing. That's with David Rico. Thursday, January 9th, 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Psychotherapist David Rico examines the science of triggers and our reactions of fear, anger, and sadness. He helps us understand why our bodies respond before our minds have a chance to make sense of a situation. By looking deeply at the roots of what provokes us, the words, actions, and even sensory elements like smell, we find opportunities to understand the origins of our triggers and train our bodies to remain calm in the face of traumatic experiences. In the moment exercises on how to process difficult emotions and physical manifestations are offered throughout the book to cultivate the inner resources necessary to deal with recurring trauma. When we are triggered, Rico writes, we are like being bullied by our own unfinished business. Explore what your body's knee-jerk reactions to trauma can teach you. Triggers, how we can stop reacting and start healing, acts as a guide to your body's powerful responses, helping you to remain calm under pressure and discover the key to emotional healing. David Rico, Ph.D., is a psychotherapist, teacher, writer, and workshop leader whose work emphasizes the benefits of mindfulness and loving-kindness in personal growth and emotional well-being. He is the author of numerous books, including How to Be an Adult in Relationships and The Five Things We Cannot Change. He lives in Santa Barbara and San Francisco, California. And then on Friday, January 10th, Angels, The Native Way with Native Californian Healer Trina Vega. She's the facilitator for this weekly class throughout the month of January. Trina writes, I have experienced angels my entire life of a short journey on earth of 62 years. I will assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. I will also include hearing from past loved ones. Let's start off the new year with opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. Please contact me at 707-391-7373 and I will be more than happy to answer any questions. Many blessings from Trina. Trina Vega is a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from Native Grandmother Ocean to Healing with the Angels. She is an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30 plus years. She is the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.